Welcome to Through the Portal, a podcast from the Social Justice Portal Project, a national collaborative think tank hosted by the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Shout out, U.S. Each month, grassroots activists and radical scholars will give voice to community struggles, national strategies, and sustainable alternatives for the future. The guest speakers, who are also Portal Project participants, explore what it means to walk through the portal of the current moment by centering racial and social justice issues. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Damon. And I'm Teresa. And today's guest is the phenomenal Harsha Walia. Harsha is the award-winning author of Undoing Border Imperialism and most recently, Border and Rule. Trained in the law, she's a community organizer and campaigner in migrant justice, anti-capitalist, feminist, and anti-imperialist movements, boom, 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 including the phenomenal No One is Illegal and Women's Memorial March Committee. So let's go through the portal with Harsha Walia. We are so excited to have Harsha with us, and we're going to get started where we always do with a two-part question, a little grounding tradition and exercise, and it's centered around time. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Mm. Thank you. I feel like this two-part question is going to take an hour to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for your work specifically, this this question is a quagmire. (laughs) (laughs) This is everything. (laughs) Yeah, what is this time? I guess for me, yeah, in this time is this this moment of uh, multiple overlapping crises and also multiple overlapping continuous movements of resistance. I'm doing okay. I'm uh, this morning actually thoughtful and waking up to Mariam Cabo's words. Hope is a discipline holding on, holding on tight and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be in the present as a future ancestor? That's something that I I tend to use as a, as a way of thinking about this moment as building on the future and the ways in which hands can be in service and heart can be in struggle. So I'm doing, I'm doing okay. So just to, because we 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 get big and we 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 get into the to the high lofty ideas I just want to pace us a little bit for our listeners that may not be as familiar as we are with your work. So for folks who are being introduced to you, how do you like to name or describe your work to 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 people who are not informed? I'd say primarily as an internationalist committed to internationalist struggle and rooted in um, dismantling particularly borders and the ways in which borders are connected to so many different forms of violence. You know, the site of the border itself, but um, I also organize, so I organize in the migrant justice movement for migrant refugee justice and rights. But for me, that's deeply an internationalist struggle. Like a lot of time we think of immigrant rights as like a local issue, but it's so deeply connected to the world, right? Like why are people on the move? Why are people displaced? We can't think about it as a local issue. Um, But I also organize and have organized for decades against gentrification and the violence of impoverishment of racial capitalism. And I also see that as a method of bordering, right? Like gentrification and gated communities and private security and police is a method of bordering, um, of separating, you know, us from them, of maintaining racial capitalism. So I like to think of the work not only as the site of struggle of of immigrants or refugees, but really 
an internationalist struggle against racial capitalism and colonialism. Bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> the point about gentrification um, is, is uh, an important one, too, because it's really a, a form of forced displacement. Um, so what are some of the, the different forces of displacement that you see in various contexts? There's so many kind of ways in which it manifests, but really so much of it comes down to colonialism and capitalism. You know, even today, the ways in which climate change is bearing down on people, you know, right now, a lot of like global statistics, if you will, are about how climate change is displacing more people than, say, you know, economic deprivation or political persecution. But of course, those are intricately connected, right? Like the reason we have climate change is because of conquest and relentless extraction. In that sense, climate change is a symptom of the system that we live under. It doesn't emerge as separate from the system of empire and racial capitalism. And so I don't intend to flatten, like there's so many different reasons that people are displaced. Each person uh, and each community and each family has their unique story that we need to tend to. But I, you know, I do think that it is important to recognize that gender-based violence, that the reasons that queer and trans folks are on the move, the reasons that so many people are on the move from Central America, from the Sahel region in Africa, uh, across Asia, all of that is really this long arc of imperialism and capitalism that is deliberately impoverished and continues to impoverish people across the world, predominantly those who are poor black and brown peoples. And that is, of course, true, not only across the border, but the kinds of displacements that happen within nation states, if you will, right? Like, why are people being pushed into the inner city or pushed out of the inner city if there's gentrification, uh, you know, rent extraction, you know, landlords evicting people, the cops moving people out of certain areas, all of that really are forms of enclosure and immobilization that have a long arc in imperialism. So I, I really appreciate that grounding and want to commend you on your, your work, Border and Rule, and you know some of the, the conversations you've been able to spark out of this text. And so you said just a second ago, like you don't want to flatten the issue. So I want to give you some space to like deepen, to complicate in whichever way is like your favorite dimension of where you like to go deep or where you like to, to, to rabbit hole a little bit, because this is the, 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 the global edition of the Portal Project. I'll, I'll speak personally. I, I'm, I have a desire in the spaces that I'm in to expand how we talk about our global consciousness, because, you know, particularly in the Black liberatory space, you know, coming out of the history of the Panthers or, or Angela Davis as this, you know, looming legacy holder, they always challenge us that we have to think global. We have to be in solidarity with the third world or the global South or however we want to name that, that spatial distinction. Um, but I feel like there's a limit, especially for folks who are justice oriented in the U.S. context of when we say global or we want to talk about borders, our imagination is usually confined to the U.S.-Mexico border and like abstract solidarity with Palestinian struggle, which are both like a good place to start. But for folks who that's kind of where their consciousness or their imagination is limited, how do you enjoy deepening or adding complexity to how we think about the global political structures that we need to be focusing on? I love that question. <laughs> I love all these questions. Thank you. Thank um, you. We, we, we appreciate affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so I'll, <laughs> I'll riff off a few things and I, I may be forgetting things uh, such as the nature of conversation. Um, but, you know, especially when when you raise the issue of how so much of the global is thought of in the North American context in relationship to the southern U.S. border, the, the border with Mexico. Uh, one thing 
that I like to remind all of us and, you know, myself as well in relationship to the militarization of the southern border is that it wouldn't be possible without the very specific histories of the U.S. and Haiti and the Caribbean, right? Like, so some of the first uh, mass detentions and mass deportations, really the, the militarization as we know it, the wall, if you will, on the southern border really emerged in the context of U.S. immigration policy in relationship to Haiti. And that immigration policy was inseparable and continues to be inseparable from U.S. imperialism in Haiti, right? So we have to understand, again, that immigration is the flip side of international politics. And so I think that's one way in which it is impossible to think about U.S. immigration outside of anti-Blackness. Like anti-Blackness underwrites how we understand the border, right? Global anti-Blackness, right? Like that, that is part of that nuance that I think we need to understand. Um, and I think it also moves us towards a kind of solidarity that is more meaningful, right? It's not just different movements or different communities in solidarity with each other, but really understanding that these are part and parcel of the same struggle. The ways in which police are operating in the inner city is exactly how Border Patrol acts on the border because these methods were made through each other. They were constituted through each other. They're not parallel and similar. They're actually the same function, right, of of policing people's movement. The other dimension I think is helpful for us to think about when we're thinking about the global South increasingly is how important it is to understand the global South not in a homogenous way, right? It can become very easy to think about the global South in relationship only to the global North, uh, but the global South has its own dynamics of geopolitics and power, right? So for example, India is a deeply imperialist colonial state that is occupying, amongst many other places, Kashmir. And so in talking about Palestine, in talking, even in thinking about global South solidarity with Palestine, it's important to think about and think against and think past global South nation states and to constantly challenge increasingly the power of certain economies and rich states in the global South you know, who may exist in a dynamic of imperialism in relationship to the North, but also important to interrogate those relationships vis-a-vis the South itself, right? So for example, today, another example, you know, Mexico is deporting more Central Americans in the United States today, right? And of course, a lot of that is bound up in the ways in which the U.S. has enforced trade wars and threatened trade wars on Mexico in relationship to Central America, that analysis alone obscures the increasing role that Mexico plays in the geopolitics of Central America, for example. Um, So I think it's important also to not flatten the global South and think about the ways in which power operates bound up in empire, but also parallel to different forms of empire. Have you thought a lot about the role of labor too in some of this transnational migration? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and one of the ways in which I think we really need to be thinking about the role of labor, especially with respect to migration, is that, you know, a lot of times we think about immigration through the kind of particular spectacle of deportations and detentions, right? Like the most violent forms of expulsion. And I should say, I should say, by the way, the role of exploited labor is what I exploited labor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I'm not alone in thinking about, but one of the functions of the border is not only to expel people, but it is to create deportability as a condition, right? We know that countries like the United States and rich states in general actually have the military might, have the surveillance power 
to deport all undocumented people if they wanted to, for example, right? But we know the reason that they don't is because the border creates a condition of deportability, which is to say not actually to deport all people, but to keep people in a precarious status of deportability precisely in order to exploit their labor. There's no such thing as cheap labor. Labor is forcibly cheapened. And so the border acts to cheapen people's labor by creating conditions of deportability. And, you know, there are so many examples around the world. We know that when migrants who are undocumented or who otherwise don't have full immigration status try to unionize, try to organize, it suddenly ICE is on them, right? DHS is on them, that they face deportation, that they're rounded up and deported. In the international arena, there's a word for it. Uh, The elite call it managed migration, where people are brought in specifically to serve the interests of capital without legal citizenship. So the state can maintain, so in the case of the US and Canada, uh, these states can maintain white supremacy without being seen as, you know, the, the fear of the brown and black planet while maintaining cheap labor. So, you know, the new Bracero program, for example, is expanding globally, not just in the United States, in Canada, in the Gulf states, in, in parts of the Middle East, the GCC countries, there are more migrants than citizens. You know, so in some parts of the GCC, 60 to 70 percent of the population are migrant workers who work there for generations who are living, in many cases, dying uh, under a deeply exploitative migrant labor program. And this is not the exception. This is the rule. Right. Like this is the method of immigration is to create exploitable labor and to create deportation and deportability as a condition of that exploitation. Yeah, no, well said. I like that phrase too, this creating the conditions of deportability. Yeah, and 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 cheapening, I think, resonates so deeply. Like I want to make space for how do we uncover some of the targets that maybe we need to be resisting? How do we recognize the entities responsible for this? I, I, I'm especially thinking, you know, because we you talk about all of this is organized to bolster capitalist markets, right? And so how do we hone in on the the corporate economic wing of the state because this system once we see that the the impact and the outcome of it is so sophisticated mm-hmm. right but the agents and the representatives that we recognize or that are the primary articulators of the system <laughs> this seems so much more sophisticated than what any politician or any vocal advocate of it is capable of even conceiving of. And so it feels like there's some shadowy behind the curtain. How do we pull back the way in which our economy and the way in which corporations drive these these state formations that are so violent? Yeah, it feels like people this violent mm-hmm. shouldn't be this smart. Um, so <laughs> so how, do we, how do we kind of un- uncover some of the sophistication of, of, of this global organization? Yeah, I think I should say, uh, well, I don't know if this is helpful. I'm a Gemini, which means on any given day, I'll give a different answer. It's very helpful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. All right. Now we can, we can move forward in peace. It means you have a birthday sometime around. I now do. Too, right? I uh, do. Happy birthday. Coming. But like, Thank you. Uh, at least 37% of the listening audience is going to be, oh, okay. Oh, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> now that yeah. you've identified Especially yourself. Especially those on the West Coast. Um <laughs> <laughs> the excuse for Shout out to the astrology. <laughs> um, I think, you know, one thing prisons and borders help us deeply understand is the seamless connection between the state and capital, you know, because there are parts of the left, especially in like the early night, you know, the early 90s for those who are as, as old as I may be or older in our movements, there was a strong push to, to like really point out capitalism 
as the boogeyman, which it is, but to really have this view that the state was receding, right? So a lot of times the response to austerity was like, we need to bolster the state because the state will protect us against capitalist encroachment, like this idea that the state is withering away. But what abolitionist analysis and politics, you know, of course, Ruthie Gilmore, amongst others, remind us is that, you know, the state has not withered away, right? Like the state has withered away in certain sectors of our life, like the care sectors, you know, teaching, education, childcare, healthcare, et cetera. But the state is completely invested in the carceral state, right? The military, the police, the border migrant workers, that is like a seamless connection. That's not just some bad employers, right? That is like a state facilitated program. Like the only reason there could even be bad employers, if you will, like the way that we hear in liberal news, right? The only way that there are bad employers is because the state has sanctioned and enabled this legal program of migrant exploitation on purpose, right? Which makes it such that people are forced to live without full immigration status and that added layer of precarity. Um, So I think one way to kind of pull back that curtain is to understand how connected the state and capitalist interests are. You know, the state is the grounding for the law that allows these policies to exist, you know, is the legal infrastructure for this capitalist violence, uh, is the jurisdictional container for this violence. And so I think that is important, particularly as a response to those parts of the left that you know, may argue, for example, about how we don't want private prisons, but like, it's not that we just don't want private prisons. We know that private prisons have an added incentive, but we don't want any prisons, right? Like that's the same for the ways in which immigration works. And so I think understanding the connection between the state and capitalist violence is crucial. Um, And, you know, connected to that earlier point, like that it isn't just these single bad actors, right? Um, but that it is the system that has been built upon itself that reproduces itself, one that is internationalist in scope. You know, like if we propose solutions that are essentially not in my backyard, but oh, we can have it in someone else's backyard, that won't bring justice to anybody, right? Like that is not liberation. And I'm thoughtful about that in this context where there's a lot of energy, for example, for the Green New Deal, right? For a just transition. Um, where we see solutions being proposed that are, you know, intending to address economic democracy and climate change and racial justice in tandem. Um, But of course, the big lingering question is, okay, so you may stop extraction in the Canada and the United States, but if you're going to continue extracting in Africa and Asia and South and Central America, what does that mean, right? Like, what is our life built on if we're not thinking about justice for the planet and for the world as a whole? Um, So I think that's another part of this kind of pulling back the curtain is to understand that a lot of the stuff that we see kind of happening at home, if we will, has boomeranged from our war abroad. So in order to understand how corporations are acting locally, we have to understand that they've been doing this since, you know, since colonization. But free trade agreements are precisely that, their austerity. You know, being an internationalist is not just an ethical commitment. It actually helps us understand where we are, where we're located and how to fight locally. Yeah, this is great stuff. And I think uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is, is hearing your thoughts about the points of intervention and thinking about the state as an arena of struggle, for example. Um, where, are the, where are those points of intervention? I mean, no, we don't want the sort of carceral state and the reproduction of the kinds of prisons, right, that, that, you know, that, that we're talking about here. But what would you say about education? Do we want public education? 
So is there a role for the state is part of that question, right? And is therefore the state an arena of struggle? What do we do about this, you know, the exploitative mm-hmm. nature of the state? Yeah. And the question of the state is a, is a constant one. I guess I think maybe I'd start by answering that, that, you know, I don't think the state is uniform. It's a different terrain of struggle and in different parts of the world, like in settler colonial states like Canada and the U.S., it's impossible to think about the state or to even think about reclaiming or redeeming the state without centering Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination, right? Like, what does that mean if that justice continues to be on stolen land, if you will? And that that struggle uh, against the state is always so central, at least where I'm located, you know, Indigenous Mm -hmm. peoples and Indigenous nations are very clear that Canada has no jurisdiction. So for me, Canada is an illegal state, regardless of whatever redeeming factors it may have. And in fact, Canada is often seen as a social democratic state, but it is intentionally kept particularly Indigenous peoples out of the social democratic state, right? Because that is the goal of genocide and annihilation and assimilation. So for me, in the context of the settler colonial state where I reside in, um, I don't believe there's a redeeming value to the state. Um, But that is not to say that, you know, we don't need to be thinking about how do we provide, yeah, education and care, right? Like the care-based work is so fundamental, you know, teaching, education, healthcare, all of that we have to be thinking about providing. Um, So for me, in terms of points of intervention, it is, uh, you know, support for non-reformist reforms, like funneling money and resources into the things that people need to survive and thrive and to fight and resist, particularly in, you know, in the interim, if you will, while we scale up uh, beyond and outside and manage to overgrow the state. You know, in the in the context of migrant justice, you know, one thing that I'm deeply hopeful about as points of intervention that our movements have moved towards is that we've moved away from the kinds of campaigns that reinforce good immigrants versus bad immigrants, if you will. Uh, so the movements that I've been part of, you know, our name is No One Is Illegal, which is like in the name, there is the Great philosophy. Title. Great, title. Yeah. Great title. I also have a t-shirt of y'all's. It's one you of have a t-shirt. Shirts. Oh, the t-shirts are so good. <laughs> I, get so, I get so much love on this. It's like top three love I get out oh, the streets. I'll send you, guys, I'll send you some. We're like down to the wire and how many we have. Yeah. And so, you know, just in that name, right, you're refusing that division. And so one of the points of intervention and non-reformist demands of the movement is status for all. So no deportations, no detentions and status for all people. And so, you know, that is one of the ways in which we think about organizing for migrant justice in an internationalist framework. Uh, And that is the right to stay and the right to move. So that means that not only are we fighting against deportation and detention and status for all people locally, but that we also see ourselves as part of the fight against war and empire, right? So that also means similar to movements to defund the police and move money. It also means thinking and organizing against the military industrial complex, right? So Canada, for example, there's been a longstanding campaign to ensure that Canada ceases to send arms and do uh, arms weapons and engage in the arms trade internationally, right, which is fueling war, particularly in Yemen. So one of Canada's main traders in arms is Saudi Arabia, which is fueling the war in Yemen. And then, of course, BDS movements, right? Like these are such important sites of intervention in the cultural terrain, um, in universities, in the educational terrain. We know that fighting against Israeli apartheid and Zionism is an uphill battle. And that point of intervention is so important wherever we can fight it fighting against free trade agreements, because we know free trade agreements are not free. They're unfree. They are unfair. Right. So every time Canada's trying to sign a trade do agreement. How do they always do that? I know, right? Everything's free. Always, <laughs> everything they do, they take a word and just, man, I know. It, no, it's, 
it's almost impressive if it wasn't so senator (laughs) totally right and so i think you know all of these fights are deeply local but have immense global consequences and reverberations for struggle and i think they're all very concrete sites of struggle right where we maintain our orientation towards freedom and liberation but find ways to um to intervene and sabotage the system in the moments that we're in can you talk more about some of those points to intervene some of the campaigns and and how they've played out some more of that detail yeah, sure. I mean, there's so many over the years, I feel a bit old. Yeah. But, you know, some of the some of the really huge ones, you know, say 20 years ago, were fights against NAFTA, against the North American Free Trade Agreement and the free trade of the Americas, right? So, you know, we are, what, over 20 years past the Battle of Seattle in 1999. But that was a huge, immense victory for global justice, where really movements in the so-called North, movements specifically in Mexico, in Canada, in the United States, were unified in a cross-continental struggle to stop the free trade of the Americas and won. I mean, it led to the bolstering of NAFTA, but that was such a crucial fight where, you know, peasant movements in Mexico, where trade unionists in the United States, where climate campaigners, where anti-imperialists across the continent were unified in the demand to defeat the FTAA. And that agreement was defeated. And, you know, what the agreement was going to do was basically increase privatization, increase militarization, and increase extraction. And so there were so many different communities who could enter into that struggle, right, who saw themselves reflected in that fight. You know, that's, that's one example, you know, more locally, I guess, uh, many of the campaigns that no one is illegal led for two decades after 9-11, right, where there's an immense amount of fear Um, And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of reasons that people really felt that they had to prove themselves as the so-called good immigrant, Um, where we had many public campaigns, you know, to fight against deportation and anti-terror policies that were specifically targeting Muslims in Canada. And Canada was going to build what was called Guantanamo North, basically the equivalent of Guantanamo on North American soil. And this was a place to hold detainees who were held on what's called security certificates, basically anti-terror legislation. You know, this was really an uphill battle for all the reasons. But really, again, after 9-11, when no one wanted to be associated with someone who was a terror suspect, right, at a time where there was such immense fear and also a lot of fear mongering, right? Like you're with us or you're against us, the George Bush rhetoric of the time. So that fight was was a big one, right, because anyone associated with that movement was labeled uh, a terrorist. I remember in, I don't know, I think it was 12 years ago, the immigration minister stood up in parliament and basically said that me and a number of my comrades were terrorists in Canadian parliament and that we were going to be put on a no-fly list, right? So that was the battle we were up against. But, you know, through a lot of organizing through, you know, connecting with broader racial justice movements, with migrant justice movements led by the family members of those who were being smeared and labeled as terror suspects. That prison was eventually shut down. And not only that, that whole legislation was scrapped after, you know, a 10 year battle. Um, and what was important about that, again, was that it was rooted in this philosophy of no one is illegal, right? That we're not separating ourselves and buying into that racial logic of, of othering and dehumanization. And there are many other campaigns like that were supporting people who were seen as the most undesirable and winning, you know, strengthened our movement. And we know this, when we place those folks at the center of our movements, it gives us moral clarity. It gives us the courage we need to win. 
And that when we win, it completely blows open the realm of possibility because then more mainstream organizations are forced to come on board, you know, whether forced or willing, like the terrain starts to shift under your feet about what's possible. I've also been involved in a number of tent cities and squats against gentrification where we've taken space in the face of developers and completely stopped and blocked development projects. And, you know, just taken up space, literally fought back police uh, in order to claim space. Many of these movements led by indigenous matriarchs who are, you know, impoverished in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the city that I live in. And that possibility of freedom of like, you know, living in a squat, living in an encampment, creating mutual aid, figuring out how to live together, how to cook together, how to create harm reduction together, how to support each other, and then actually winning social housing. Uh, So not only beating back, you know, major condo developments, but then forcing the state to build social housing that a number of those folks now live in. You know, these are all uh, immense victories. I could go on. That's what I mean. My rabbit hole is endless. But I'll, I'll stop there. I, I love talking about victories, but there are many. These are the kinds of things we want people to, to hear about, too. So, no, this is awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, there's so much to that you can distill from those lessons that you're sharing. Mm-hmm. Of one, I think it's important, like, in all of those stories that you're telling, it, it establishes that, like, the system is not static or complacent, right? That it is always trying to expand or revalidate itself in, in new space or recreate space. The strategy I'm hearing is the old adage of centering marginalized folks that are that are most impacted give us this compass, as you say, and from that compass or from that direction, then at the site of expansion, that is where we can be most effective. Like when they are trying to encroach and take further ground, one resisting that and putting a stop and not allowing that expansion to be a given or assumed, uh, but then also using that site of expansion, particularly in this housing example to then create space for greater demands or to force the state into providing resources to those same people that are being harmed by the violence. So that is, I think, one, just for listeners, like a clear cut, just framework that that folks should should wrestle with and and digest. Uh, But I want to go from intervention to imagination and creation. What are the formations we need to build, create, conceive of that allow for the type of human mobility that is needed and should should you know happen throughout throughout our planet. Um, and so one of the formations that that I I'll offer as a jumping off to like what are the things that are beyond our organizing capacity right now, but we should start like using as a north star. Um, I think of, sh- of of the shift from it's not just state right because state is in in my understanding the, the the central apparatus of political economy as a way to simplify right. It is the coupling of nation state. To me, that feels so harmful because I take from the Boggs, basically uh, Grace and, and, and Jimmy Boggs name a nation as like a politicized people. So there are people, which is like a social cultural entity. And once those people are politicized, that becomes a nation. And so coupling nation with state, then it is a politicized people that are dominating a land. And I don't think that is the relationship human beings should have with the earth and with land. I think our human formation should be determined by our ecological realities. So there are enough geographical borders and varying ecosystems. So, you know, the governance of a desert space should not be the same as a prairie land space, as a mountain space, as a swamp land, right? Like all of those ecological realities should determine our political economy. So, so that's how I think we, sh- we can transform from, from the nation state to, to maybe a better outcome. And so using that transparency of kind of like my little humble thinking as like a, a, a palate cleanser for you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, jumping off from those grounded experiences and strategies mm-hmm. of intervention, what do you push yourself or other folks to imagine or to strive to create? Because we need, mm-hmm. I think it's not just about tearing down or dismantling all yeah. this horrible shit, right? Like our real power will come from building things that don't yet exist. Mm-hmm. What's your vision? Yeah. That basically. <laughs> yeah. Other than, yeah, I mean, I got, I got the words, right? No borders, no cops, no prisons, no sweatshops, no banks, no borders, no bosses. Um, but for me, I think, you know, maybe it's the, it's the honor of living on and in close proximity in relation to indigenous nations who continue to steward their land, right? Like that is the, the specific terrain and struggle in which I am politicized and learning and in relation to on the West Coast. I won't go deep into history, but I think it is important for folks to understand that, you know, even in particularly in Canada, where I am, there are many nations who uh, only had forcible contact with European settlers in the past century. You know, we're not talking four or 500 years ago. We're talking this past century, which I think is important, you know, full circle to that question of time in terms of people being able to resist, being able to maintain their cultural autonomy, their sense of nationhood, their language. Um, you know, indigenous elders who still don't speak English because they were not forcibly assimilated through the project of genocide, right? What that has meant in terms of um, how I understand these visions of how we might live together and how for me, they're actually deeply connected to a borderless world. You know, oftentimes one of the questions that gets posited is this idea of like, well, aren't borders necessary for self-determination? Right. Like Mm, if you are a people struggling against imperialism, isn't a border going to help you? And my answer, and I'm, you know, increasingly convinced of this (laughs) is no, no, because the border is a method of capital, right? Like the border is not a demarcation of territory and autonomy. Like the border is inseparable from the nation state, the same way that you can't have a reformed prison that works in the service of, you know, gender-based violence, right? Like we've seen that as a failed project. Like you can't transform it towards a liberatory goal. A border cannot be transformed into a liberatory goal because it only acts in service of state violence and capital. Like you can't make it something else, right? And so I feel really clear on that because in particular, you know, a lot of what gets posited in the settler colonial context is like, well, what about indigenous people asserting their borders? And one example that I give Uh, of a community that I'm very close to and who are in struggle is the Wet'suwet'en Nation. People may have seen them. Their videos have gone viral. They've been in the U.S. on Democracy Now! too. They have been fighting pipelines for the past decade and winning. Like They have evicted pipeline companies and the police from their territory. And when you enter their territory, they ask a series of questions. In a kind of flattened sense, you could say that these questions are like, oh, they're just acting like a border guard. But they're not right because they are they are completely transforming the function of the border in the same way the community accountability is not the carceral state. The example I'm going to give is not the border. It is actually the opposite. And so the questions that they ask when you enter their territory is, why are you here? What is your purpose? And is your purpose going to serve the people in the land or are you here on behalf of the state and industry? You know. People are welcomed onto the territory. It's not a rigid idea of a border, but the idea is that you are in service to something that is self-determining, that you are contributing, right? That you are not there to extract, you are not there to be visitors that, you know, the idea that you leave a place better than how you found it, that you are in service to the land and that you are in service to and in and acting in relation to, in reciprocity to what is already there. 
And so to me, that is actually not being a border guard at all, right? Those are very legitimate questions of how any of us enter into a space, right? We enter with humility. We enter with a sense of the ancestors that guide us, the values that we share together. Um, and we create something together collectively and communally. It's almost like a, a grounding session. Is, is yeah, more right? Like. like, why are you here? And when pipeline and industry have answered that question, they haven't been able to, right? And then they are <laughs> evicted. They are evicted. They are not allowed onto the territory. You know, that's not the vision. Everyone's going to self-determine, but that is one vision. And I offer that because I think sometimes, you know, I'm in a city, it is really hard to see past the concrete, but it is a really useful reminder that there are people all around the world including in big cities, no shade to big cities, um, who are reconfiguring and pre-configuring how we live in relationship to each other. You know, we are thinking and dreaming of ways of being together, both at the macro level and if geography and, you know, in the political context allows us at a macro level, like this example that I gave, where you're literally able to kick the state and capitalist interests off your territory. I mean, they've had to face down the military. It hasn't been simple, but, you know, they have, they've stayed winning. They're all possibilities, I think, not only of a future to come, but of liberated spaces in the now. And I think that is important because sometimes liberation can seem in the future. And of course, collective liberation is is in the future where we're not there yet. But I think it's so important to think about and remember and hold on to the ways in which it does exist in the present so that it doesn't seem completely utopic, but something that we can actually make together in the present, you know? So for me, the vision is that, like a borderless world where we are we are self-determining in ways that are true to each other in the earth rather than state and capital. Now, this is good stuff because if we don't figure out how we're going to live together, we're, there is not going to be any here to live together. So it's a really it's a really important project, right? Before we start to wind down and get to our closing question, I want to ask an intentionally redundant question. So I think the relationship between border and the imperialist nation-state project and the how we think of domestic carceral apparatus and carceral militarisms in the form of prisons and other detention centers. I think colloquially, folks can say that, that prisons are borders and borders are prisons, but I, I don't want to take that as an assumption. So I, I, this one is for the listeners out there that are kind of like half smirking like, yeah, I get it, or I can say that, or you know, I could put that on a t-shirt, um, but is there a way we can for folks struggling with that or who, or this is new for them, can we deepen our understanding of how borders are carceral and how all carceral apparatus, particularly when enforced militarily, are the same functions as what borders are? Can, can we parse that out a little bit more for folks before we wind down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if we were to define carceral systems, like actually what their function is, like we know that they're punitive and they harm people, that is their impact, but their intention is to demobilize people. It is immobility and dispossession. And, you know, thinking in, for example, partic- you know, again, the settler colonial states that we're in, not limited to, but just to focus for a moment, that immobility we trace to genocide and enslavement and empire, right? Like that the function of enslavement and the function of settler colonialism, amongst other things, was immobilization, right? Like indigenous peoples were put onto reservations, like res- reservations are sites of carceral containment where indigenous people are not allowed to leave the reservation. Enslavement and slavery, of course, are deeply carceral in terms of the immobility and the control. They have their own logics, of course, of genocide, right? Anti-indigenous and anti-Black genocide. Um, And underwriting that in terms of carcerality, thinking, of course, of Black scholarship 
writing about the period after formal, the end of abolition of, of formal slavery and thinking about prisons and the black codes, uh, the black codes were completely about immobility, right? Where black people were not able to travel between states in the United States, right? That immobilization. Coming back to the border, one thing that I'll say is the predecessors of the U.S. Border Patrol. So Border Patrol was created in 1924. The ranks of Border Patrol agents were um, drawn from, you know, white supremacist vigilantes, right? Like the Texas Rangers, like KKK and others. And their function was not only to keep migrants out, particularly Chinese migrants during the gold rush era, Mexican and Central American migrants, but a key function was to keep Black people within the border, to not allow Black people to escape into Mexico at the time. So this is late 1800s, early 1900s. So function of the border was to keep Black people enslaved and or free within the border of the United States. In that sense, it's acting as a prison, literally to keep people not only out, but to keep people in, to keep people locked in, right? Um, so carcerality is about immobility and dispossession. And when we see that, we start to see the ways in which the border is acting as a prison, right? Like keeping people locked in, in conditions of deportability, for example, that we were talking about earlier, keeping other people out in, in precarious statuses to maintain global apartheid, right? You know, the function of keeping people out of the United States is also to ensure that the global South keeps producing for the United States, right? The ways in which racial capitalism and empire maintains itself is to maintain the global South as a site of impoverishment. And it does that by ensuring that people can't actually enter the U.S. because then you're locked in into free trade agreements, uh, you know, in an era right now of global vaccine apartheid and more. You're locked into sweatshops. Um, that's how you keep people in sweatshops is to make sure they can't physically leave the sweatshop. You know, in Bangladesh, for example, the sweatshop industry is actually policed by a special industrial police force, right? A carceral police force that keeps you on the factory floor, the reservation policed so that you can't live off the land. Um, so I think that we start to see the synergies between the prison, between the reservation, between a gated community in the inner city, between a sweatshop, you know, between a factory floor, between an Amazon warehouse and between the border. There's a synergy there of how immobilization works in order to create the precarity that racial capitalism and empire require. For those who don't get it, now you do. You know, thank you for thank you for schooling some folks. So to wind down, um, this portal project is again temporal and is defined by this time. Um, so in the last two years, we have seen, you know, uprisings like we've never seen globally here, you know, in the U.S. context. It's estimated that 20 million people were, were mobilized um, in 2020 and 2021. We are also in this time of shifting global health realities as a result of this pandemic. And as you named, you know, vaccine apartheid that continues to shape these disparate outcomes and this asymmetry of movement as something that I've, I've heard you name before. So that kind of is the context of this radical think tank and this portal project that you've been invited to as kind of the framing. Once we put these conversations together, once we begin to make this space to imagine and to resist and to activate, what in this time feels more possible as people enter through this portal? I think what feels possible and hopeful to me is, um, amongst other things, the clear rejection of liberalism that I think a lot of us are moving against, right? Like that the counter to the far right and white supremacy and, you know, overt 
right wing like Trump is not Biden. It's not the liberal center. <laughs> the, you know, the actual opposition to the right and to fascism, I mean, like to deeply frightening, violent fascism is actually an unabashed internationalist revolutionary left, you know, that is connected to abolition, that is connected to the world. Coming back to what you were saying, you know, not false solutions when we're thinking about climate change, but meaningful, real solutions, right? And so a rejection of liberalism is actually something that gives me hope because for too long, that was the false antidote. And I think we're moving against that as, as we need to. Yeah, right on. Thank you so much for your time, for your brilliance, for your work that made this conversation possible. Uh, for our listeners, is there any place where you or organizations work would like to be found? Any, any, any digital or social spaces where folks can connect if possible? Oh my gosh, I'm so bad at the socials. Um, Twitter, I'm on Twitter and through there, uh, the, the things that I'm connected to. I'm so grateful to you all. These questions were so thoughtful, so generative, so provocative, and I'm, I'm just so humbled to think alongside and to be in conversation with you. Thanks for coming through the portal with us. Thank you so much, Harsha, for that wonderful conversation. Yeah, it, it was truly a gift to be able to work through those ideas of how human beings should relate to each other, to space, to land, and to our world. And as always, thanks to the Portal Project at SJI at UIC. We'll be back next episode talking about grassroots organizing with one of the homies, I may say. So tune in for that. And of course, thank you to all the listeners for going through the portal with us. Much love to the people. Talk to you soon. <laughs>